Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us in the New Testament again in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We have read the paragraph detailing the call of Simon and Andrew on uh, three successive Sundays. Today, good news, we're going to move to the next paragraph. We're going to begin reading in a moment in verse 43. John chapter 1. Our focus today uh, in this series we're calling the 12 is on the calling and life of the disciple called Philip. He is unique in several ways, and we shall highlight those and then contemplate the implications of Philip's life for our own. Let me begin reading in verse 43 of John chapter 1. The next day... Anytime the Bible gives a time stamp, you should ask, what was the former day? Well, the former day was the day when he called Simon and Andrew and James and John. So those four have already been called. And now the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, who, by the way, will be our focus next week. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We'll stop there for a moment and ask the question, Who is Philip? several things that we know about Philip from this passage and others. We might call him the fifth disciple, fifth of the twelve, because as we mentioned before, there are four lists of disciples in the New Testament, three in the Gospels and one in the book of Acts. The first four names are the same in every list, and the second four names are the same, though their order changes. But the first name in the second list is always Philip, which means to say once you get past Peter and Andrew, James and John, the next name in every list is always Philip. So who is Philip? He is a disciple, and apparently he is a leader among the disciples, though he is not in the first four or even the first three. We learn in this passage verse 44, that Philip is from Bethsaida. Bethsaida, as we've already discussed when we discussed both Peter and Andrew, is a small town in the northeast part of the Sea of Galilee. If you go today to Israel, they'll take you to a town they believe is actually Bethsaida. In fact, we don't know for sure. Bethsaida was destroyed and not reoccupied, so there is no current town called Bethsaida, but it is believed that Bethsaida was a small town, very small town, just a few hundred people, from northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, It plays a significant role because it is the hometown of at least three of these disciples, uh, Simon and Andrew, as well as now Philip. He is from this small town. That's going to matter in a moment. 
Another thing we know about Philip is that his name, Philip, is Greek. It is not Hebrew. Now, as a Jewish disciple, and he was clearly Jewish, it is interesting that his name is Greek. It is never, there's never any reflection in the Scripture of his Hebrew name. Now, there are several theories floating around about why that would be. The most prominent of those theories would be that his family had, uh, were, were Greek and had become proselytes, if you will. They are Hellenistic Jews. Uh, it would be another option that they are Jewish people who have sort of immersed themselves in Greek culture, and uh, the Greek culture had, had come to the uh, near ancient world, and uh, there, there's a common language, there's a common uh, currency, there's a, a, a common experience, uh, with, with so many people, and it could be that, that uh, this young man was indeed a, a follower from a Hellenistic family. We don't know for sure. We can only guess. Many of us would know the name Philip because Philip is the name of a man who appears in the book of Acts. He is the man who is listed in Acts chapter 6 as one of the, uh, what it's come to be called, the first deacons. He's also uh, a man who is uh, the man who engages the Ethiopian eunuch in uh, Acts chapter 7, chapter 8. Uh, in fact, that Philip in book of Acts engaging the Ethiopian eunuch is not this Philip. Apparently there are two men that we have to keep track of named Philip. And uh, one is an apostle and the other is one who comes along later. We also know a last thing about this man called Philip, and that is that he is a student of the Scripture. You'll notice in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found of him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. He knew the law and the prophets. He was a student of the Scripture. And we could say that about all of these disciples. They are not ignorant of the Old Testament teachings of the Messiah. Of course, at that time, we would use the term Old Testament and know we're talking about what he calls here the law and the prophets, uh, that the term Old Testament would obviously not have been used prior to the time of the New Testament. There is only one testament, and that's the law and the prophets, the writings. So Philip is a student of the Scripture, and he knew that the Scripture was foreshadowing the coming of the Messiah. He was looking for the Messiah. It was a man of some faith, in other words. It is possible that he had some familiarity, perhaps even some further involvement with John the Baptist as the others before him, but we don't have any explicit explanation of that. So this is Philip. He is the fifth of the 12 disciples. In every list, he is the fifth name. So he's no small player, if you will, no small person in the circle of Jesus experiences. But I want to show you a little bit about Philip's life and then try to make two applications. When we begin in John chapter 6, John chapter 6, all our study this morning will be in the gospel of John because Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not mention Philip at all. But John does and mentions him repeatedly. So we'll consider John chapter 6. I want you to uh, note this miracle that is uh, not a small miracle and not an unimportant miracle. I've told you many times that 
The primary miracle, in fact, the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels is this one, the feeding of the 5,000. So it's an important miracle that we should consider this morning. Notice verse 1. After this, Jesus went away the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? I want to stop there a moment. Again, we don't know why he addresses this to Philip, except perhaps to accomplish the testing that he's going to reference in a moment. But another theory is, and we know this from parallel passage in Luke. Remember, this miracle occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. In Luke's passage, he tells us that, in fact, the feeding of the 5,000 occurred on a mountainside outside Bethsaida. Bethsaida. That's his hometown. That's Philip's hometown. Now, it could be the reason he asked Philip, where should we get food for all these people, is because somebody comes to our town, and they don't know anything about anything. They're going to ask us questions. Where can I find that? Where can I find this? How about those? Et cetera, et cetera. They're going to ask normal questions. Perhaps Jesus is asking Philip this question because this is his town. Where would we find food? But in fact, I want to suggest there's something far more significant going on And I want you to notice how he explains it. John does, verse 6. He said this, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? For he himself knew, rather he said this to test him, for he, he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus is engaging in a conversation with Philip because he intends to grow Philip. Testing is designed by God not to ruin us, not to wound us, hurt us unnecessarily, but rather to grow us. The press of life or the difficulties of life, the challenges of the testing of God, and God clearly tests us. God God does these things in order to grow us. We know this plainly from many other passages of Scripture that tell us the same. So what is God doing here with Philip? He's not trying to embarrass him. He's not trying to uh, hurt him unnecessarily. He's not trying to, to somehow bring him down, drive him off. He's not trying to punish him, not trying to do any of those kinds of things. That's the way people think about the testing that God brings in our lives, but that is not the witness of Scripture. Instead, Scripture tells us that God intends these tests in order that we might be strengthened. Use the illustration of weights and muscles and so forth. Why do people go to the gym and lift weights? Why do people put pressure on their muscles? The answer is to strengthen their muscles, to elongate their muscles, to build more tissue, to make them bigger. How does that happen? Pressure. Testing. What does God intend for your faith? He intends for it to get bigger, not smaller. He intends for you to be braver, more courageous, more devoted, more faithful, not less. He's not intending to bring you down. He's intending to build you up, and he does so with testing. So look here again at verse 6. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. To which then, verse 7, Philip answered him, 
200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Now, we'll stop there a moment and contemplate the implications of that statement. Philip's response to the question that Jesus asked, do you have a plan? Do you have a plan for feeding 5,000 men and their families? His response is, there's not enough money that I have a category for, 200 denarii. Now, I want to think with you for a moment, do a little, if you will, uh, paycheck math. A denarius is a Roman coin, and it was typically the wage given to a day laborer. So we're not talking about somebody who makes a lot of money, but just somebody who makes what we might call a minimum income. So let's say for the sake of conversation, a minimum income is $8 an hour. You work all day. You're going to make uh, somewhere between $60 and $80, depending on how long your day is. But I'm going to use $75, $75 is a modern equivalent for a day's laborer. All right, you may take issue with that, but don't get hung up in the math. All right, it's an illustration. So $75. So let's do a little math here. 200 denarii, if a denarius is worth $75 in today's situation, then 200 of those would be 15. 15. Help me out. $1,500. No. $15,000. What's 100 times 75? $7,500. $15,000. So let's assume for the sake of conversation, we're going to have lunch today. We invited the whole town of Clinton to come. And 15,000 of them showed up based on the rain. We probably overshot it. 15,000 of them showed up. Now, who's going to pay for that? You say, well, we don't have that much money. We don't have that kind of money. And you might say, well, $15,000 is not enough to provide lunch for 15, uh, rather for, for several thousand people. And the answer is, yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. It, it's going to cost more than we have. And that's the point, isn't it? Jesus is doing a miracle here that's going to go beyond Philip's categories. It's going to go beyond Philip's experience. He believes, right? But he has a weakened faith because we all have a weakened faith until we don't. And we all know that Jesus is doing this in order to bolster his faith. So he has a conversation with Philip. What are we going to do? And Philip says, I have no idea. I have no category because 200 denarii $15,000 in our modern equivalent is not enough to feed all of these people, several thousand people. We, don't, we just don't have enough money for this. And there's just no category for, for this. You're asking for the impossible. But Jesus knew what he was going to do. Now, we know the rest of the story. Andrew, who we've already looked at, has located a boy with a lunch, five loaves and two fishes. They're going to take this, thank God for it, and they're going to distribute it. They're going to break it up. And they're going to distribute this. And everybody is fed until they are satisfied, the Scripture says. I'm jumping ahead in the interest of time. But they're satisfied, and then they collect 12 baskets full. He sends all 12 of the disciples out to collect a basket of the remainder, and all of them bring back a full basket of leftovers. The point, of course, is that 
God intends to do something that is far beyond their capacity. And that is the point. Philip had to learn the difference between believing in what he had seen and believing in what God could do, what God was doing, what God was about. Let me show you an illustration of this. Turn to John chapter 11. This is not a story about Philip, but it's a story about the same thing. I want to make this point again in a very vivid way. John chapter 11, verse 17. Now, this is the story of the death of Lazarus. You'll remember that Lazarus is a dear friend of Jesus and that Lazarus has two very prominent sisters, Mary and Martha. And they have sent word to Jesus that their brother is near death and they want him to come because they know that Jesus is the miracle worker and is going to provide potential healing. So they send word to Jesus. Uh, What we don't read in this situation is that Jesus delays. He does not come immediately. Now we know from the vantage point of time that the reason for that is he's waiting for Lazarus to die. Martha says you need to come before he dies, but Jesus intends to resurrect him. So therefore, he has to wait for him to die so that Jesus can do that which Martha has no category for. Watch this, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles. Many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, depending on your tone of voice when you read those words, you might suggest that she's actually accusing Jesus of being responsible. Perhaps you would read a criticism into that. I think that's an unfair reading here. I think what she's expressing rather is, I have a category called your ability. And your ability is to save people before they die. But I don't have a category called resurrection from the dead. Because there are things that miracle workers can do, but resurrection from the dead is too much. It's too big. It's too huge. It's too massive. It's beyond my category. So again, apply Martha's comment in John 11 to Philip's comment in John 6. And I want to suggest they are reflecting the same position, if you will, the same mindset. And that is that God can do certain things, but God can't do anything. God can't do everything. God cannot raise the dead. God cannot feed thousands and thousands of men and women and perhaps their children with a boy's lunch. We don't have enough money to accomplish this. The point is Philip had to learn the difference between believing in what he had seen and understood rather and and, and somehow believing in the power of God to do more than he'd ever seen. I want to suggest to you that's a important lesson for us to contemplate for our own lives. All of us claim to walk by faith. We walk by faith in the 
work of Christ. We walk by faith in the resurrection of Christ. We walk by faith in the promise of Christ. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You believe in God, believe in me. My Father's house, there are many rooms, mansions, houses. I've got a place for you. I'm going to go prepare this place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. You believe that? Yes. Faith. We believe these things. We have a category called believing these things. But then we look at other things in our lives, or we look at other things beyond our lives. We look at circumstances or situations, or we look at the the gravity of, of some burden or some trial or some difficulty, and we ask ourselves, is God able? And we say, well, of course God's able, but is he? Do we really have confidence in God? Do we really pray expectingly? Do we really anticipate that God is going to move? Now, again, these things must be held in tension, and this is the problem. When we don't, when a, when a spring springs, and, and all of a sudden our, our tension goes awry, we, we find ourselves leaning on one side or the other. We find ourselves saying, on the one hand, without faith, God can't do this. God's, God's just not interested. God doesn't care, and I, I'm just not going to pray. And we shut down. We shut down our faith. We shut down our hope. We, we shut down our, our confidence in God. We shut down our joy in God. We become embittered. We become disenchanted. We become disconnected. Um, my memory bank is full of people who have disconnected from God, disconnected from the church. They've become embittered. Why? Because God could have, but he didn't. And because he didn't, God won't or God can't, and therefore who needs him? And in other words, we want to manipulate God. We find ourselves telling God what he must do. And we say, because God does not do what I tell him to do, or ostensibly ask him to do, which is really telling him what to do in their minds, I'm, I'm now embittered because God didn't, God can't, God won't. Therefore, I reject God because our tension, our tension is not being held properly. The other side of it is, of course, that we, we say, well, because God can, he will. He will. And I'm just believing God for this. And we start claiming things and, and using language like that. I just claim this before God and so forth and so on. And I want to suggest to you that's not totally inappropriate. However, the truth is none of us knows all that God intends to do about any situation. I want my loved one to be healed. I want my circumstances to be changed. I I want my extended family circumstances to be changed. I want my marriage to be changed. I want my children to be changed. I I want my my, my life to be different, and, and, and so forth. And we, we, because we see the Bible says we are to be people of faith, we are to believe and hope in God and understand that God can do these things. If God can feed the 5,000 with the boys' lunch, then he can certainly do this. And why would God do it for them and not do it for me? And the answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know. But I want to tell you, friend, if your faith doesn't have a category for believing that God can, then God's going to keep sending categories to test you like he did Philip. He's going to expose the fact that you don't believe him strongly enough.
Because God intends to test Philip, and he intends to test us. Because he loves us. And God intends for his children, just like you do for your children, by the way, only more. He intends for his children to grow up and be mature, to be competent, to be wise. And God intends to do that by building your faith and confidence in him. That your hope would be in him. You say, well, I... I, 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 I need to see the plan. I need to know how it's all going to come together. I need to, to think about it. Well, maybe Philip's that personality. Maybe Jesus asked Philip because Philip is the guy who's logistics coordinator for the disciples. Some have theorized that. Maybe he's in charge of logistics. Philip, we've got to have a plan here. You got a plan? Philip, you got any money? You got, you got a plan for how this is going to go down? No. In fact, there's not enough money in my mind. 200 days wages is not going to be enough to feed this crowd. I don't have a category for how to do this. Yeah. There are a lot of things in our lives where we don't have categories for how to do it. And yet God intends to do it. And God intends for us to believe him. God intends for us to ask him. God intends for us to hope in him and to hold in tension the fact that we cannot require of God on the one hand, but we can ask of God and trust that God who is able will do exactly that. God intends to build our faith, not destroy our faith. God intends to draw us near, not push us away. Understand that if you have had a moment of testing and somehow you find yourself distant from God, that is not a failure in God. If you find yourself in a moment of testing and find yourself adrift from God, understand that is not God's intention. You have disconnected. And God would have you to come home, to come back, to draw near to Him. Because this notion that you've got it all figured out and it's all going to be a cerebral A plus B plus C is going to equal D, etc. You've got it all figured out. That's not the way God intends to work in every instance in our lives. Let us be people of great faith. Let us be people of bold prayer. Let us be people of great hope and expectancy from God. Because this is the nature that God intends for us to hold with Him. He intends for us to believe that there is a difference between believing in what we've seen and believing in the power of God to do what we cannot and have never seen before. There's a second thing that also grows out of this paragraph, John chapter 6. And that comes from the end of the chapter, or more toward the middle, if you will. You'll note this in verse 22. And that is that Philip had to learn the difference between the value of bread for today and the value of the bread of life I want you to notice how this is phrased, beginning in verse 22. You'll recall what happens here. Jesus feeds the 5,000, and uh, at night he draws away by himself, and then he leaves, and uh, he walks on the water across the sea. He's now made his way back to the other side of the sea, and the people are going to follow him around the shore, so they don't cross over on the 
water like he did, but they're going to catch up in due time. So this is the record of what happens. Jesus has all these people. They continue to follow him, and he begins to teach. And I want you to notice his teaching, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered that boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. In other words, they sent word and people came. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got in the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, I want to just mention this, hypothetically. Now, I know that we have food connoisseurs here. People will reject a free lunch just because you're a, a foodie and you don't like free lunches and uh, so forth. But let's say, for the sake of conversation, we announce that we're going to feed people today for lunch. Not everybody will stay, but let's assume we say we're going to spread the word and People are going to come, and we're going to do it every day. We're going to feed you for lunch every day. People will come. They will come from far and wide. They will have, that news will travel far and wide because a free lunch is a free lunch is a free lunch. And it may be a bad lunch, but it's still lunch. And free is a really good price, the best I've found. So there are people that will come. What is Jesus saying about these fellows? Verse 26, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you had a free meal. You ate your fill of the loaves. You were satisfied in that bread. To which he says, verse 27, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So what does Jesus say to them? Don't labor for the food that perishes. Don't labor for lunch, but rather labor for the food that endures to eternal life that which satisfies the soul. They said to him, verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. That's the problem with a little Bible knowledge. That's the problem with a little Scripture understanding. You can quote the Bible when you don't have any understanding of what the Bible actually means. So what do they do here? What sign do you do? Well, I don't know. There's one sign that's not even 24 hours old that I did across the sea. That would be something. That would be my attitude. What were you guys doing when we were taking a boy's lunch and feeding thousands? Is that not sign enough? No, it's not. Because unbelief is unbelief. It doesn't matter. So in this case, they quote the Old Testament. What work do you perform? And they quote this story about the fathers eating the manna in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus answered them, and this is the point that I want you to see, verse 32. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father 
gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Now I want you to pay attention here because this is where you have to kind of lean into the Bible to understand what's really going on here. Notice they quote the Exodus experience where Moses provides manna. And you'll recall the manna had several characteristics. One, it showed up every night and fell on leaves like dew. And so in the morning when they got up, it had dried to a powder of sorts, and they were to take it off and fashion it into bread. You'll recall that they got enough each day for that day and no more, except on the day before Sabbath, they were not allowed to collect this bread on Sabbath, so they were given two days' worth. And so God fed them with bread from heaven. You'll recall that God fed them throughout their entire time in the wilderness with this manna, so that day after 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 day, God has fed them and fed them and fed them and fed them and fed them. And they don't have to work they don't have to have jobs. They don't have to transfer currency and money and so forth. They don't have to do any of that. They just have to go out and pick up the manna. That's all they had to do. And so in their minds, that's the wonderful provision of God. That's what they want to do. They want to be delivered, as it were, from work. They want to be delivered from the toil of work and the sweat of the brow, the difficulties of of currency and the highs and lows of economy and all of that. They want to be delivered from all of that. Just give us daily bread. That's what we want. And we want to live a good life without having to work. In other words, what sign are you going to do? Because they have a category. They have a category called super-duper signs. That's my terminology. You'll recognize it. Super-duper. And in their minds, super-duper signs is free bread every day. And I bet you got a category called super duper signs too. It's probably not bread every day. But it's something like that. Moses gave us a sign. It was bread every day from heaven. You claim to be somebody. Let's see you top Moses. Jesus said to them, I say to you, Moses didn't have anything to do with that. Your problem is you don't understand who's really taking care of you. You don't understand what this life is all about. All you care about is lunch. You're just looking to be satisfied here. 
you're entirely short-sighted. And you don't understand what's really going on. That's true, isn't it? When Jesus tells us to look forward to heaven, we'll agree with that. We'll say, yes, Lord, we're looking forward to heaven. But can you take care of my list here too? Can you get busy on my list here? Can you just take care of them and those and these? Can you just... Can you just take care of my here and now? I got these problems. And I, I got to have a God who's involved in my problems. Because a God who just promises me future rewards. He's no good to me. I want you to notice again verse 32. Maybe you picked up on this, maybe you didn't. But I hope you'll never read this verse again that you don't. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave, that's a past tense verb, but my Father gives. That's a present tense verb. That wasn't Moses in Exodus giving you bread. That was God. And my Father who gave, gives. My Father who gave you bread from heaven is now giving you bread from heaven. You know that experience on the other side of the lake yesterday that involved loaves and fish, lunch, if you will, or dinner? You know that experience? You know, you know who who that's about? Do you know what that's about? That's about reminding you that what you need is not simply somebody who can give you your lunch or your dinner. What you need is someone who can supply you eternally, who can resource you and give you true satisfaction. Every one of us today are going to eat some measure of lunch, I suspect. And we're going to eat in such a way as to ultimately be satisfied. We're going to eat something we enjoy. We're going to eat something that fills us. We're going to eat something that resources us, supplies us. And that's the nature of life. We must do that. But in a matter of hours, we'll be unsatisfied, dissatisfied. We'll want to eat again and eat again and eat again and eat again. And we find ourselves utterly dependent upon this ritual that God has placed in our bodies in this life. It's called eating. We must eat, we must drink, we must sleep. We must go through these things because our body, our humanity demands these things. But these things are not eternal. These things are not what life, true life, satisfaction in life are truly defined by. Because true satisfaction is not temporal. True satisfaction is not temporary. True satisfaction is ultimate. True satisfaction stays with you. True satisfaction is not satisfied today and disappointed tomorrow. That's the nature of our life here. Don't you want more than that? Aren't you tired of chasing your tail? Aren't you tired of being tired? Yes. So my father is not 
He's not oblivious to your ultimate needs. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from the heavens and gives life to the world. He gives life to the world. Jesus takes the platform of the miracle of loaves and fishes and explodes it into their hearts. And he says, do you not understand what this is about? This is about the true bread. Interesting, they respond in verse 34 and say, sir, give us this bread also, always. We want this bread, this bread that satisfies forever. We've seen that kind of terminology before. John chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus is interacting with the woman at the well. You remember they're drawing water, and uh, Jesus uses not the analogy of bread, but the analogy of water. And And he says, the water that I will give him will become in him Uh, a spring of water welling up to eternal life, to which the woman then says in verse 15, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Is that an unreasonable thing? You're able. Can't you just supply me? Just like Moses provided bread every day in the wilderness for years and years and years and years, can't you provide me with water so that I never have to come here and go through the, ter- the toil of drawing water, putting up with the heat, etc., and all of that? Can you do that, God? Absolutely. But I'm intending for that cycle to wean you away from this life and to point you to the one who can give you living water, can give you the true bread from heaven. I want you to know that there is a difference between the value of bread for today and the bread of life. The bread of life is only found in Jesus Christ. Moses didn't give that bread. God gave that bread. But he intended it to be a pointer. The very way God has created our lives here. Think of it. Why do we have to eat? Because God created, created a system that requires us to eat. Could God have created a system where we didn't eat? Absolutely. We didn't need water? Absolutely. He could have done all that, but he didn't. He said, well, you know, God didn't want to make us a machine or whatever. Well, be careful getting in the mind of God. What we know about the mind of God is that God intends for this earthly experience, this earthly cycle of food and drink to point us to the fact that we are never satisfied and can be never satisfied in this life. You can never have one meal and never want another meal. You will always want another. Because God intends for you to understand this principle that this world cannot satisfy. It cannot. You're a dog chasing your tail if all you're doing is living for this life. Instead, Jesus came and he told a woman at the well in John 4, and he told these who gathered around him after the loaves and fishes in John chapter 6, I am the living water and I am the bread of life. And if you come to me, you will be satisfied. You will find peace with God. You will find peace with yourself. And there and only there, Will you know the true meaning of satisfaction? I don't know what surrogates you've built in your life. I don't know what, if you will, houses of, of joy that you've built in your life. 
as long as I have this, or as long as I can participate in that, as long as I can give attention to those things, et cetera, et cetera, as long as I have enough money for this or that, then I'm happy and my life is happy and my circumstances are happy. I, I don't know how you've structured your life, but I promise you, friend, God is in the business of tearing down and knocking down, if you will, testing our confidence in earthly structures. Philip, what's your plan? We got thousands and thousands and thousands of people on a hillside, and they're all hungry. You got a plan, Philip? I'll tell you, friend, God would look at you and I today, and he would ask us, what's your plan? What's your plan for solving the great needs of your life? What's your plan for solving the great challenges that you're facing? I predict that in due time, there's going to be a challenge or challenges for which you don't have any idea how to fix. And on that day, you're going to recognize that A, you're not God, and B, you need him desperately. And God intends for you to lean not on your understanding, but upon his. God intends for us to cry out to him, to look to him, to hope in him, and to trust in him. And ultimately, there and only there will we find true satisfaction. If you're thirsty today, come to Christ. If you're hungry today, come to Christ. There we will find what we're looking for. Let's pray together. Father, we indeed pray for your grace upon us, your help, and your strength to understand, to apply, to know the way of God, to follow God, to rejoice and hope in God. Jesus came to reveal God. He did so in Philip's life. He does so in ours. He intends to build faith, confidence, hope, trust. Make it so, Lord. Do not let us be weak, but let us look to you, the true bread of life, the one who satisfies not just in this life, but in the life to come. Lord, give us grace. We need you desperately. Pray for your help now. In Christ's name, amen.